real letter, right? I mean, we have it in this thing called our English Bible, but it was a real letter that was sent to a notorious island, the island of Crete. The island of Crete was quite literally a centerpiece in the Mediterranean Sea, which meant all types of philosophies and religion and sin washed up on its shores. And it had a dreadful effect on the locals, so much so that one of their own had this to say about the people of Crete, that the people of Crete are all liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Boy, that's not the most flattering description. The people of the central coast are all liars, evil beasts, lazy, you know, I'm not saying that. I'm just, you know, imagine that. That's the description. And then Paul actually says, you know what? It's true. <laughs> that's the context that this letter that Kim just read for us, that, that's the context that, that's the environment that this letter was sent to. So, so what do you do? What do you do if you, if you live in a dodgy place like that? How do you follow Jesus in that kind of environment? How do you raise your family in this kind of place? How do you pastor a, a new church where people are all liars and lazy gluttons and evil beasts? That is why Paul wrote this letter and sent it to Titus to instruct him and the churches exactly in this context in Crete. Where does, he be, where does he begin? When he gets down to the body of the letter and he starts to instruct, he gave his greeting last week, and remember it was truth tightly packed. He's an apostle. Here's why he's an apostle, for a purpose, for a promise. Remember that? But when he gets now down into the meat of it, into the body of the letter, how does, where does he begin? How, I'm curious, since we just thought about Crete as this sort of you know, scallywag sort of place. What would you say to someone in that environment? What would you say to a pastor who's trying to minister and lead a church in that environment? I mean, what, what, what could you say? It's fascinating where Paul begins. I mean, think about this. Sin is rampant. There are false prophets roaming around all over the place. And so where does Paul start? What advice does he give? You ready? Church organization. That's right, folks. I mean, you know, like, drum roll, please. Okay, Paul, come on. And now to ecclesiology. That's where Paul starts. He's concerned about the nature and structure and mission of the church on Crete. That's he says, that's, that's, look, Titus, my man, that's why I left you on that island. That's why I left you on Crete. So that you can set things right. So that you can put God's house, as it were, into order. How? Well, by selecting these elders. 
I don't want to do that. I mean, can, like, can I just choose, do they have to be elderly or like, or can I choose anybody that seems right? Like young, old, uh, men, women? I mean, how, where do I go to select these elders? How, how, do, how do I do that? That, friend, is what we're looking at today. We come face to face in this section of Titus, face to face with the subject of the local church and the structure of the church. Paul lays out the requirements for an elder. And these requirements can be spotted in three areas of an elder's life. His domestic life, his devotional life, and his doctrinal life. You understand? Paul says, when you're searching for a leader in the church, the first place you ought to look is not at his giftedness, but at his godliness. And where? In the home. In the home. That's verse 6, his domestic life. The next place you guys should look is his, is his personal life. How does he behave in the community? How does he act? How does he treat people? What kind of lifestyle does he have? Is it one that's pursuing God and holiness? Or is it, well, is he a bit like more like the Cretans? Does he stand out? That's verses 7 through 8, his devotional life. Finally, what does this guy believe about God? What's his doctrine like? And how concerned is he that he actually helps people with that doctrine to both protect people as well as teach people? His domestic life, his devotional life, his doctrinal life. Now, there's a danger here for all of you. Here it is. Here's the danger. You hear a sermon like this simply as applying to someone else. These truths, these qualifications, well, I suppose that's what the elders got to worry about. But, I mean, you know, this doesn't not for me. I mean, I suppose I can keep them in mind as Rob is preaching along, but this doesn't directly apply to me. That would be the danger because these are characteristics for anybody who calls themselves a Christian. Just because you're not an elder doesn't mean you get to give this passage a miss. Just because you're not an elder doesn't mean that you're exempt, you get a hall pass, that this doesn't apply to you. These biblical principles apply to you, Christian friend. How is your domestic life if you have one in the home with your wife, husband, kids? How is your devotional life out in the community? How is your behavior? Does it reflect the gospel? How is your doctrine? You're thinking about God. 
is that shaping the way that you care for people and want to protect people from error? You see, these are applicable to everyone sitting here in this room that calls himself a Christian, not just to elders. Domestic life, devoted life, doctrinal life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that this is such a privilege that we can come and sit under your word this morning. We pray that we would be people that are shaped by your word. For your glory we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so when we dive into Titus, as I said, this is a real letter written to real people. It's likely at some point in history, Paul and Titus had a missionary tour um, through Crete. The two of them were successful in evangelizing various cities on the island, and small churches were formed because of it. At some stage, and we don't know why, Paul felt it necessary to leave and carry on ministry elsewhere. But he took off before he could get churches properly organized. So that's why Titus stays behind. Look at, I mean, that's what Paul says, right? And if you're coming here to Titus 1, he says, look, this is why... This is why I left you in Crete, right? He doesn't waste any time here. He just cuts right to the chase. This is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So these were early days for the church in Crete. Uh, They were newly planted congregations, but they lacked structure. That's the reason Titus is there. It's to straighten things out. And how does that happen? How does he set right what is lacking in these churches? By appointing elders. You see the term elder there? It's in verse 6. It's also in verse 7. It's used in a different way, though. Notice verse 6. There's the term elder. It's also in verse 7 as the term overseer. Or you could say bishop there, literally. Um, Please don't call Dan or I bishops. Um, but it's the term overseer, and, that, and that's what an elder does, dear friend, oversees. What, is he, what does Hebrews say? Right? Obey your leaders, your elders, because they have to give an account for your soul. So, so uh, someone that shepherds, that oversees, and we're going to get into that specifically in the last point. There are two different words there, elder, overseer, but they're one in the same office. Now, there's a couple of important features about an elder uh, we need to address here up front. First, I want you to look there in your Bible, verse 6. First is that the church isn't led by an individual elder. Did you see that? Notice it's not singular, it's plural, elders. In every church, in every town, Titus was to appoint elders, not a one-man show. It's not a CEO. It is a shared leadership amongst who? Now, notice the pronouns. Elders were exclusively men. The reason for male-only leadership in the church is not that women lack the spiritual character or ability that men possess. Rather, it is God's order for human society going back to Genesis 2, for males to provide headship. I know 
I don't know if you already just tuned out, maybe you just tuned back in, because I know that flies in the face of our egalitarian culture today. People, just by the fact that I said that, who knows, this may just, you know, go viral on YouTube, right? But listen, the Bible's teaching is clear for both the church and the home. Qualified men are ordained to lead while godly women follow, support, and serve with the variety of their gifts. I wonder what's going on in your head as I say that right now. Some people are like, nah, I don't agree with that. I don't agree. Or some people are, you're feeling really uncomfortable. Friend, hear my heart in this. I, I, if that's you, I would love to sit down and chat through these things. I, I didn't arrive at these conclusions because they're convenient to me or popular, quite the contrary, actually. I've done heaps of study on this subject, and I'm convinced that this is what the Bible teaches concerning biblical manhood and womanhood. And so again, I can't launch and do an entire sermon on this, though maybe when we get to, say, Ephesians or Colossians, we can. But I would love, listen, genuinely be delighted to sit down and, and chat this through with you. Because it's a hard issue, actually. This is what the Bible, is, this isn't unclear. Every egalitarian position will often say this on this. Well, you see, the situation back then was there was, really? How do you know? Well, because I read this book. How do they know? Where's the source? They don't have one. The plain sense meaning of scripture is such. Um, if you don't want to meet with me because you think that, you know, I'm, who knows what, what on your mind? On your way out, here's just a little helpful booklet. 50 Crucial Questions About ma Biblical Manhood and Womanhood um, by Grudem. So I'll leave that out for, there for you. You can take that as your leisure. Um, but hear my invitation clearly. Because this is actually an area to explore. This is what I pray. Oh, I pray. And part of my vision for even coming to Australia, I'm, I'm leaking too much here. Reel, reel me in, Dan. Was to actually help churches think biblically through this area. Because it's a bit of a mess, particularly on the coast. Rant ended. Invitation offered. Only catches. You, you shout the coffee if we have coffee to get it. Okay? Now, let's look at, okay, look at verse 6 because right, okay, so Paul's about to lay out these specifics, right, for the elders, but then he drops this bomb, like, in verse 6. He, he gives this overarching statement. Can you see it? Notice, above reproach. That's what an elder's to be. Some of you might have an NIV sitting on your lap, and it says, blameless, by chance. Whoa, my goodness. Blameless? I mean, this doesn't mean sinless or faultless. Otherwise, no one could be an elder, right? It, it, it does have the idea, though, of being unchargeable, if I can make up a word. You can't charge someone. It's a man of unblemished reputation in these particular areas that, that he mentions here. Now, 
what area did he cover first? What area? It's how well he can preach and cast vision. No. Where does he begin? The first thing that's said about an elder concerns his own family. Basically how he stacks up being a husband and a father. In other words, his blamelessness must occur within the walls of his own house. His domestic life. Come with me there. Look at his domestic life. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. All right, super keen to unpack this, but I need to state a few things here. We're going to actually really camp out on this because this particular verse can be overinterpreted. You can read it in a very literalistic, wooden sort of way. For instance, some will conclude, oh, you're not married? Oh, sorry. It says husband of one wife after all, right? Doesn't it? So no single blokes. Can't be an elder. Oh, you are married. Oh, but you don't have kids. Yeah, right. Disqualified. Sorry. You're out. The word... Notice it's not just kid singular, it's kid plural. So do you have, do you have more than one kid? Not just one kid. Oh, mate. Too bad. I, I mean, by the way, there goes Jesus as an elder. And Paul, for that matter. You see, this verse can be over-interpreted. We'll circle back to this idea in a moment. But for now, notice the emphasis placed on his marriage. That, that's, in all seriousness, look, the husband of one wife. Now, we could spend the next 30 minutes on this phrase because of all the potential implications here. But for now, I simply want to state the obvious. Clearly, this phrase would eliminate a polygamist <laughs> for consideration as an elder. But I, I'm not convinced that's, I'm not sure that's largely what Paul has in mind here. Because it reads, a one-woman man. That's how you want to see that. A one-woman man, meaning... This guy has a track record of being both faithful and devoted to his wife. That way that people can see this. How is this guy above reproach? What if he has this, you know, sort of positions himself as this, oh yeah, I love my wife, da da da, and then treats her like dirt in the home? Well, it, there needs to be some observation that he is above reproach. That people can actually say, no, this guy has a, a legit marriage. You know, the Bible instructs husbands in 1 Peter to live with your wives in an understanding way. So, fellas, listen up. We should be attentive to the woman God has blessed us with. We should study her, honor her, and cherish her. Paul says that's the very place to look when searching for a qualified elder. That's the first stop. A man who shows dedication in his marriage, who loves his wife, who's faithful, who cultivates unity in his marriage, his domestic life. But you don't leave the home yet. The next place to look is where? His family, his kids. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are 
believers. All right, still with me, okay. Children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery. I really don't like how they translated this insubordination. It sounds like Star Trek or something. Give me, give me who else has another translation? Give me another word. I like unruly, feral, disobedient, little rat bag. We'll come back to that. But notice first, before we come back to that, let us, uh, well, hold on. Children are believers. At first glance, it seems to be saying that a man's kids need to be Christians in order for him, him to serve as an elder. Otherwise, if they're unregenerate, well, he's unfit. Or perhaps he becomes an elder at a church, but later on, as sadly some kids do, they go off the rails. Well, at that point, he should resign being an elder. Is that the stipulation there? His children must be born again believers? Well, seems to say that. Unless, of course, we do a little digging and theologizing. Let's, let's dig into this word believers, okay? Because his children must be believers or this idea of believe. Uh, the word in Greek here is pista, which means it comes from pistos meaning to believe or to trust. Right, not, not too complicated there. I'm not going like, to go into all these details, the participles and stuff, right? Just the, It means to believe or trust. But here's the thing. This word has a wide range of meaning. So you could also translate it faithful or generally obedient. You still with me? So here comes the $20 question. Should this be translated here in Titus, faithful children, like, you know, generally obedient, or should it be translated believing children? Well, the ESV, the Eastern Suburbs version, went with, unfortunately, wow, I shouldn't show them all my cards yet, went with believing children. Uh, NIV, I believe, did that as well, depending on your translation. Not everyone did that, though. Not every Bible translation committee did that. Um, some went with faithful, good old KJV, baby, King James, what it, you know? If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having, notice, faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. There's that term that we like. Christian Standard Bible, oh, well, come on, that's the King James. All right, fine, fine, fine. Christian Standard Bible, uh, one of my professors, Tom Schreiner, helped, was on the translation committee for this. Um, an elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with, notice, faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. And then if you're still not happy, if you're like, well, I've got a New American Standard Bible, even though part of the committee wasn't regenerate when they translated it anyway, I'll stop that rant there, but I've got an NASB, so Take that. Well, I'm going to go with uh, Dan Wallace, who's probably top three Greek scholar in the world. Okay, Dan Wallace translated the Net Bible. Guy knows his Greek at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he said, an elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who cannot be charged with dissipation or debauchery. Now, we still don't have an answer if it's faithful, because we could argue, no, besides Dan and myself, 
uh, well, and I guess Adam um, and Peter. Only a handful of us even know Greek in here, so it doesn't really solve our issue, okay? Let me show you how pista, though, is used. So let me show you that word pista is used by Paul in other instances, in other verses. It's actually translated both as believing and faithful. So turn to the left of your Bible. This is the pastoral epistles. By the way, just as a note, as you're turning to the left to 2 Timothy chapter 2, typically these pastoral epistles throughout history have been read together. First, second, Timothy, and Titus. So Paul says to Timothy chapter 2, he says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to what? There's that word, faithful men. So not just any old Christian, but faithful men. Now, now go to the left again to 1 Timothy 6. It should just be a page over. It is in my Bible. 1 Timothy 6, we'll pick up in verse 1. Let all, 1 Timothy 6, 1, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Here comes this word. How do they translate pista? Those who have believing masters. You see it? Believing masters. Same word can be translated as faithful, faith, you know, generally obedient or a true believer. All righty. How should we read it in Titus then? Shall we read it as believing? Or shall we read it as faithful, generally obedient? This is where context is key. And some broader theologizing. You with me by that? So Wayne Grudem famously says, what does the whole Bible teach about any given subject? So you don't just... In other words, every little phrase doesn't make its own pristine point. You have to see the warp and woof of Scripture and what the general teaching of the Bible says. So come back to Titus. Come back to Titus 1, and don't miss the whole way this verse is worded. Notice, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. If this means believing here, as in the kids must be regenerate Christians, I'm curious how on earth an elder is supposed to make that happen. Only God can regenerate a sinner's heart, including elders' kids. We can't create physical life any more than we can create spiritual life. I mean, he just talked about physical life. They must, they must have children, right? Well, some people, for God's own purpose and reasons, can't have kids. So are they disqualified? They can't, they can't have, create physical life any more than they create spiritual life. Only the Lord has the power to do that. You can't guarantee your kid's salvation, but you can ensure that they're somewhat well-behaved and they're respectful, and they're not feral. So given the context and how salvation works, 
I think, you know, this is debated. You can disagree with me. That's fine. I think we're meant to read this as faithful or obedient children. And when you read it that way, well, where does the emphasis, where does the accent fall? Well, it falls upon the way that the elder is leading his kids, stewarding his household. I mean, why would someone be responsible for caring for the church when they're not able to pull it off in their own home? How can an elder lead when his kids are little monsters? He can't. Kids are sinners just like him. But there's a, have, you know what I'm saying? There's a difference between a dad who's generally having a go at, at being the authority in his kid's life and one that's just like, right? If he doesn't know how to take care of his own house, how shall he take care of the household of God? How shall he take care of the church? Listen, marriage and family life provide the most probing analysis of a man's character. What I am in my own house, okay? What I am in my own house in that realm is the foundation for this realm. Are you with me? What I am in my own house, as God has called me to be the leader of my family, albeit imperfectly, what I am in my own house lays the foundation for what I am in this realm out here at the church. His domestic life. So having spelled that out, this idea of spiritual competence in the home, Paul now moves to his devotional life. So his domestic life, his devotional life. If anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife, now verse 7, here comes verse 7 through 8, his devotional life. I, I, was, I stuck with the D's there. You know, I, 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 it would probably be more his personal life. But you gotta, you know, if you're a preacher, you got to stick with the last week was the P's, this week the D's. So, Dan, what you got next week? Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, that'd be really good. Dan and I were talking about it this week, actually, because we're excited. Petra and Rosie are both being baptized next week. And so we've encouraged them, hey, invite your friends. And then Dan, God bless him, has the passage, if you just keep looking, about the heretics. You know, so people are going to be like, yeah, right, okay. So better you than me, though, man. You know. All right, so... Let's look at his devotional life, his personal life. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Same, same thing again. Again, not perfection. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. You might you notice here, as he keeps reading, part of this list is negative and partly positive. Did you catch that? It, it's, let me say this, though. It's definitely not exhaustive. He doesn't list everything that could be listed, but it encapsulates the general essence of somebody's character. You, you with me? It, it's not this, someone who's just living for themselves. It's this. It's not someone who's greedy. It's someone who shows hospitality. It's not this. It's that. So you're, you're catching the general thrust of it there. Look at verse 7. Or sorry, verse 8. We'll keep going. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and 
disciplined. So the first five vices listed are pretty self-explanatory, right? I, I teased this out this week with Sky and Dan going, I don't want to now make this a bullet point list. Let's look at the first one and look at it in five minutes and five minutes and five minutes because I, I think there's a general sweep there, a general sweep of a, of a man's character, of a Christian's character. I mean, and, and it's sort of obvious. Don't have the town drunk as one of your elders. Easy enough. Right? Like, like these things aren't like super hard to grasp like rocket science. I, I did find interesting, though, I do want to just hit two things. First is, I found it, when I was reading this over, I found the, do you notice he says, not greedy for gain? I found that bit a bit intriguing, given how, how many ministers basically adapt their sermons in the hopes of gaining more money, right? And they write books like Your Best Life Now and, and all these other things so that, well, that you like them, and then you buy their books, and then... Guess who gets rich off that? Just saying. But you could so tailor, you could so tailor your preaching so it doesn't offend people, and then you get more people, and then you just keep bu- keeping the budget going bigger and bigger. So that, you know, before you know it, I'm living in Mossman driving a Mercedes, right? It's not gonna happen. <laughs> but but you, you get that. I find that fascinating. Let me also say this too. Um, as I read through this list, I, I'm one of the elders here, okay? And I thought, n- I don't think I've ever done this, but, um, and I think it's inappropriate when pastors spend every Sunday doing this, but as I read through this list and did some honest soul searching, um, I, I just thought, you know, if you could pray for me, I think the last few years in particular, um, when it says that they are not to be quick-tempered, I think that's been kind of a struggle for me the last few years. So don't mess with me. <laughs> I might just blow up on you and take your head off. Yeah, don't be a brawler, right? Now, and, and listen, um, this isn't feel bad for Rob time, but um, it's been a real challenge for me l- trying to do what we've been trying to do on the Central Coast, trying to disciple people, trying to take the church serious. People have said some really off-the-wall wonky things that just annoy the heck out of me. Um, There's an entitlement that comes from this culture. There's a tall poppiness, which I think is wrong. And it's, it's getting to me. It's really getting to me. Um... To where I find, now, praise God, I haven't blown up, at least I don't think, on many of you. And if I have, I will ask forgiveness. But could you please pray for one of your pastors? I, I find, and, and walking through COVID, I, oh, I, this has been a real struggle for me. Again, I won't share all the details there. You could probably read between the lines. But I found myself just quick to be like, I'm just going to just destroy this person just here and just leave them in a pile. Like, I just, I really struggle with that. And, um, and then I'll pray for them afterwards. No, no, it's not funny, right? But like, I, I so can you please pray for me because I don't want to be quick-tempered. And I need you guys, the local church, 
to pray for me. So, thank you for that. I want to be devoted to Christ. And so, yeah. Now, if we keep reading, enough of me, we can see the positive qualifications there. You see that? So, it's not, it's not all doom and gloom. Verse 8, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And now in verse 9, he hits on pastoral care. I'm intentionally using that word there, pastoral care. Verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to instruct in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is his doctrinal life. You know that you can, if you ever wonder if I, let's say, stop caring for you, it's when I stop preaching God's word and I begin to tell stories. It's when I began to not push on you to live a godlier life and just be an ear for you. You know I'll stop caring for you when I just spend all my week just having a chin wag with you. That's not caring. The way I care is by teaching you, dear friend. That's what a true elder is called to do. A biblical, I mean, read it right there in the text. This is what an elder does teaches God's people and rebukes those who contradict the truth. I wonder how that sits with you because, you know, we've, we've stuffed up the idea of a pastor so hard. He's either a glorified TED Talk giver with a pop concert or a pop psychologist sort of guru or whatever he is. The Bible says a, his He's to be devoted to his family, yes, 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 but he's to be informed doctrinally so that he's able to teach and to rebuke those. I pray that I'm that pastor to you guys and that Dan and I both are, albeit imperfect. So the way that you would mishear that is go, oh, he's just saying that all he wants to do is talk about doctrine. No. No, 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 no. But, but the general push of what Dan and I are on about is helping teach. What does is, what is Ephesians say a pastor is to do? Ephesians 4, equip the saints for the works of ministry. That doesn't happen through little chin wags having a tea. That might happen. There might be some, but it has to be, those little talks need to be gospel-centered. That you need to be drawing people out. How are you growing in holiness? Waste of time to sit there and just have a chin wag. Honestly. I have, I have, let, let me, and let me just be clear, for those of you that are just checking this church out for the first time, I have zero desire to just have a chin rag with you. Zero. But I would love to sit down with you and talk about the things of God and how that's relevant to your life. So if you're on for that and if you're up for that, you've come to the right place. He must teach. I just love the way this is, and how, no, okay, let me, and let me say this too. Remember this isn't just for elders, this is for you. I wonder, hmm, Look at verse 9 again. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also which we rebuke those who contradict it. If you're, if you're a father in here, this is, 
friend, hear that clanging in your ears. You're to teach your children. Uh, Even if you're not a father, wherever God has you in your sphere of life, you're to point people to Christ. To teach. And I, I really like he rebukes those who contradict it. That doesn't have to be screaming, though I'm tempted to. But like, we're not all just a, pastors, it, we're not just happy, clappy, little greeny people. We call out error when we see it. We don't have to do it with like a scowl on our face, but we do it because it's hindersome to people. It ruins whole households, as he says later. Right, to the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled, nothing is. I'll close with this last quote here from Dan Doriani, who's a, a professor at a school in Bible college in, in America. And he, he says, given these remarkable high qualifications for the office of elder, what a daunting task Paul gave to his subordinate, Titus. Where was he to find men of such high caliber among the new converts on Crete? The answer is that Titus was to raise them up He must do as Paul had done for him, investing in promising men with time, prayer, and instruction, providing opportunities for service that would build spiritual muscles and grant experience for greater ministry, preaching the mighty word of God, setting an inspiring example in his own conduct, and trusting the Lord to raise up the leaders that the churches would need. You know, that's why, as I've been preaching God's word here for the last four and a half years, I have seen I have seen that have an effect on many of you. Positive effects. Where your your eyes have been opened. And and Dan and I will continue to do that. And continue to invest into you. We want to see you thriving in your domestic life, in your devotional life, and in your doctrine. Look, if you're like, well, I don't really know anything about it's easy for the pastor to say, of course he's going to get excited about doctrine. I don't really know what to do. I just, I'm just a, uh, 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 uh. mom said, mom, mom said, but equip class, 8.30. It's a great opportunity for you to sharpen your skills and sound doctrine, 8.30, equip class. Please, it won't be here next week, but be here the following week as we dive into these things. It's not just like, Here's information dump that Dan's giving you. Oh, cool. It's not maths. It's actually seeing how God is working in history. The guys like Augustine, and what's the Lord doing in the medieval era, and then the Reformation, and so on. And so that you're able to then pivot off that stuff and teach other people. Hey, do you know there's a lot bigger sort of time frame of church than sort of we just imagined it ourselves? I want to say this too. In closing, um, you know, Andrew served for uh, three years. He's taking a year off right now. Andrew and Dan, you, um, you church, us, we are blessed to have elders that, that live up to these standards. You know, like that's, don't take that for granted. Like, look for ways you can encourage those brothers Look for ways that you can send them an encouraging text. Pray for them. 
Let's pray. Lord, we praise you again for the clarity of your word. These are not, uh, Lord, you did not mutter from heaven, but you've given us clear instructions about how your church is to be structured and built. We pray, Lord, as we reflect upon the Lord Jesus now, his death in our place. We pray that as we see visible images of just simply juice and crackers, Lord, may it point us to the spiritual reality of Christ crucified. Christ who died in the place of sinners. Bring us to you, Lord God. So would you meet with us now, Lord, in a special way as we break bread together. In Christ's name, amen.